glad that you can join us online as we continue our series on the problem of God. It was so great to see so many of you out on Friday uh, evening for our Zoom call. We had over 50 people uh, there, and so I just want to encourage you to connect uh, with us this Friday as we look at the problem of the Bible. And I know some people ask me, Daniel, can I just come and can I be a silent listener? And yes, that's totally fine if you want to just come and if you're a little bit unsure of participating or not, just come and you can be a silent listener or even in our WhatsApp group if you want to join and be a silent listener, that's totally fine as well. We always love to hear different perspectives, so uh, as people participate, we always uh, are encouraged by that too. So thanks for joining, and remember, the 10th person that joins the Zoom call on Friday is going to win a book, and this week, I'm going to give out the book, The Reason for God by Timothy Keller. So be the 10th person. Now, we had a number of people join, so you might want to join actually a little bit before 7 to try to be the 10th person. So looking forward to seeing you there at 7 o'clock this Friday evening. I've also updated some resources on our website on the Problem of God page. Uh, So take a look there, and you can see some other things as we go week by week of things that you could be referencing. Uh, And also make sure to check out our notes section in our bulletin. I've included there a lot of the quotes and things that I'll be referencing today, and the same for last week. Today we're looking at another big question uh, that skeptics and believers have. In fact, according to a national survey that asked, what would you like to ask God, the number one question was, why is there pain and suffering in the world? And so today's topic is the problem of evil and suffering. And when you look at the world today, when you see uh, killing and disease and the pandemic we're living through, terrorism, natural disasters, pain, uh, discontent in the world, one might ask the question, why all of these things? And now, this comes really from a, a Western Enlightenment framework where we seek after pleasure, we seek after happiness, after a comfortable life. And so if there's anything contrary to that, we ask, why are these things actually happening? And so when it comes to other events and circumstances, we many times evaluate it from within this framework, this Western Enlightenment framework. Um, But we don't have to look too far when it comes to problems and difficulties. Just take a look at your uh, Facebook feed or Twitter feed or turn on the news and you'll see all sorts of things that are happening that cause us to wonder. And even just into our friends and our families, we see suffering, we see evil, we see difficulty and pain. And so I want to look at this question through five different angles or what I call five different sides. The personal side, the religious side, the atheistic side, the biblical side, and also the Jesus side. So first I want to start off with the personal side, because we have to realize if you're here today and if you're joining us and this is your first time or you're, you're new and you're just tuning in or you're invited, thank you so much for joining us today. Or if you're listening uh, to this later on or as a podcast, thank you for joining us and uh, exploring this topic with us. But uh, if you're going through pain today, if you're going through suffering and difficulty, maybe the first part of this message might sound really cold and intellectual. Um, I'm going to present some arguments and reasons for some of these things of pain and evil and and suffering, and I hope maybe if you hang in till the end, uh, you might find some strength and hope in what God's Word says. But I also realize that intellectual answers can only take us so far. When we're faced with real pain and suffering and difficulty, um, intellectual answers are insufficient. And I don't want to trivialize your pain that you might be going through today. 
So I'd like to ask you, if you're going through a hard time, can you send me an email? Can I pray for you? This is a very personal topic. It's a very personal issue when we think about evil and suffering and something that hits very close to home for all of us. In, in my probably almost 20 years of, of pastoral ministry, I've seen so much that has happened. I've seen sickness, I've seen broken families, I've seen rejection, uh, uh, employment issues, even death, and so many difficult situations and circumstances, suffering and pain that people have gone through. And many times I'm at a loss for words in those difficult situations. And I find hope and comfort in the words of Jesus and the hope that Jesus actually brings uh, in our life. So can I just give you two verses right off the beginning because this is a very personal issue? Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. And if you're here today and your heart is broken, if your spirit is crushed, the Lord wants to help you. Just hang in until the end of the message. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more near the end when we get to the biblical side and especially to the Jesus side of the hope that Jesus can bring into a very painful and difficult situation. Psalm 147 verse three says, he heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. And so if you're here and your heart is broken, today if you're here and you've gone through some, some difficult situations, the Lord wants to bandage your wounds. Jesus wants to meet you where you are. Can I ask you just to send me an email, danielm at uachome.org. I'd love to, to pray for you. I'd love to just be a listening ear to do whatever I can to support you or reach out to anyone on our staff. Uh, we would love to be able to uh, be a support to you or if you're in our life group, reach out to your life group leader. Um, pain and suffering is a very personal issue. And it's a difficult uh, thing to deal with when we're going through it. And we need the support of community and friends in the body of Christ to rally around. So please reach out to someone in need and send me an email. I would love to, to pray for you. The, the second side is the, is the religious side. Now, whether you're religious or irreligious, this is a question or something that you really need to deal with and, and to figure out. Now, we're gonna get to the skeptical or the atheistic side in a, uh, in a moment, but it's also important to view different religious perspectives. And I'm just gonna cover two really quickly because there's a, a lot, and even what I cover is just, is just a very general overview. The first one is New Age philosophies. New Age philosophies derive their viewpoint from Eastern religions, uh, but rooted in pantheism, where reality is identical to divinity, right? So that everything around you is, in a sense, God, right? That uh, you're surrounding yourselves by a, a sense of divinity, whether it's the trees or whether it's uh, physical objects or, or even people. And therefore, you have practices like praying, meditation, positive thinking, especially in order to reach a greater state uh, of enlightenment. Mark Clark in his book says, New Age philosophy teaches that we all have the divine in us, or more accurately, that we are all a part of the divine essence in some way, part of the cosmic consciousness. This view, unlike atheism, doesn't suggest that evil and suffering mean that God doesn't exist, but that evil and suffering themselves don't exist. So in this view, this, this new age uh, philosophy is that it denies the existence of evil and suffering. It's the, the more the positive thinking. It claims that negative events or moral evils are not real. They are simply maya or an illusion. 
right? And so positive thinking affects uh, the negative reality that people might be, might be living through. And so in this, in this viewpoint, there's a sense of a, a denial of evil, right? The avoiding of reality, the avoiding of addressing really what the substance issues are at hand. Uh, now, New Age thinking is very broad. There's a lot more things. This is just uh, uh, something that's very general. Uh, the second thing is karma in Eastern religions, right? So when you look at uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, when you look at Sikhism, Jainism, Taoism, all of these and, and, and others uh, have various interpretations of karma, right? How it's applied. But in general, karma is the actions of this life will affect your future destiny. What goes around comes around, something like that, right? What you sow, you will reap, right? So although the initial thoughts of, of karma might seem noble and good, because as you do good to others, uh, good will come back to you, right? And therefore, good works is really exemplified. The, the natural outworkings of this theology uh, leaves one with more questions than answers and actually comes into a very dangerous state. Um, Mark Clark shares in his book about a time when he was traveling within India and he saw so many people that were destitute, sick, um, and, and in need of help. And there was one woman who had a small child and she reached out to him uh, for help and he was ready to give her some money when the guy that was with him stopped him and said this, you can't give them money. If you stop karma from doing its job to this woman and her baby, she'll have to live this suffering again in the next life. And so he was stopped from actually doing a good work, stopped from actually helping that woman just so that karma can play its course, right? And the problem with this kind of thinking, thinking is that it makes you feel guilty of things that you might not have even done. Am I suffering now because of a previous past life? Am I suffering now? Am I going through difficulty because of sins that I were done maybe before and, and there's no connection maybe to that, right? And so it, it propagates suffering without actually giving an answer for it. It doesn't seek to help people in their time of need, right? It's more about punishment in order to produce pleasure later on. Let me pay my dues now so hopefully later on, you know, things will be better. The cross of Jesus, the gospel is completely opposite to this, where Jesus is the one that takes our pain, Jesus is the one that takes our suffering, Jesus is the one that takes our punishment, our lostness, and dies for us in order to give new hope and to give life to us. Karma says you get what you deserve. The gospel says you get what you don't deserve. We deserve punishment. We deserve judgment. We deserve the wrath of God. But what God gives us through the gospel is love and peace and joy and forgiveness, reconciliation, hope with eternity in mind with Jesus forever and ever. Because Jesus took the punishment so that we can have life. I remember uh, I was in a class some time ago and there was a business owner, um, a Christian business owner who works uh, in, the, in, in a particular region in Asia. And he, told, he talked about how his theology, his belief in Christ, his uh, relationship with the Lord caused him to go there and start businesses in order to help people come out of sex slavery, come out of trafficking, come out of uh, destitute living to help the poor. His theology, his belief in God taught him to help people in their state of suffering. Whereas, as Mark Clark said, he saw people in need and couldn't even help them because karma had to live its course out. The next side is the atheistic side. Now, this argument says that if there is a God, 
How can he allow evil and suffering to continue? Wouldn't God, a good God, put evil and suffering to end? This seems like a rock-solid argument. The, the philosopher David Hume said, God, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's impotent. Does he have the power to do it and he can't? Well, if he can, he's impotent. Is he able uh, to but not willing? Then he's malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Why then is there evil? All right? Now, this seems like a, a pretty convincing argument here. Uh, Alvin Plantiga, who I mentioned last week, probably, uh, you know, one of the greatest philosophers that's still living, one of the greatest philosophers to ever live, he presented five uh, premises for God and evil. He said this, number one, God exists. Number two, God is omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. Number three, God is omniscient, meaning he's all-knowing. Number four, God is wholly good. And number five, evil exists. Now, atheists say that all of these five things can't exist at the same time. Atheist philosopher J.L. Mackey said, a good thing, i.e. God, always eliminates evil as far as it can. And there are no limits to what an omnipotent thing can do. So therefore, in conclusion to that, if God exists as an omnipotent, omniscient God, he should eliminate all evil because God is good and God is all-powerful. That's the argument. There's, there, there's two refutations to this which we need to consider. The one is the free will of humanity, and the second is the greater good. Uh, the free will defense uh, in defense of suffering and evil was largely popularized by Alvin Plantiga. By the way, he was the 2017 winner of the Templeton Award. In response uh, to J.L. Mackey's premise of the logical problem of evil, Plantiga presented that, his, his argument, right? Now, Mackey acknowledged that Plantica's defense was, that was successfully defeated his own uh, theory or his own premise, but that it didn't really answer the argument of evil. Now, there's a lot of philosophical thought that Plantica presented. I can't get into that today. I think the shortest version of his defense of, uh, of free will uh, is like 60 pages or something like that, which is worthwhile reading if, if you want to dig into this more. But basically, if free will is in the earth, if humanity has free will and we have choice to choose between good and evil, being good or sinning, then there has to be an option for evil, right? The other option would be to create a world, right, that doesn't have free will and we would just be robots. We would be without creativity. We would be without the will to choose to love and have a relationship with God and others. Here's a good summary of what Plantinga is saying. God's creation of persons with morally significant free will is something of tremendous value. God could not eliminate much of the evil and suffering in this world without thereby eliminating the greater good of having created persons with free will, with whom he could have relationships and who are able to love one another and do good deeds. The argument here is you can't have one without the other, right? Or you can't have, you can't say, you know, let's have free will and let's eliminate all evil. Then you defeat the purpose of free will. Could God have created a world without free will, without the choice to choose uh, right or wrong? Well, he could have, but then we would all be in robots. And as, as Plantinga says, we wouldn't be able to choose to love God, right? So 
the free will of humanity is a defense against the problem of evil in the world. The second thing is the greater good, right? This argument asks the question, does a good act, if God were going to eliminate evil, does a good act by God to eliminate evil, would that produce a greater evil? Or does a good act to eliminate evil, would that eliminate a greater good? Right? So by God eliminating one action of evil, does it thereby create something that's more evil? Or does that action of eliminating evil, does it create a greater action? Uh, does it eliminate that greater action of good? For example, if God were to eliminate uh, one action of evil, would that prevent maybe a famous scientist being born? Or if God were to eliminate a certain action of evil, would that, would that allow the, the opportunity for somebody like an Adolf Hitler to be born? Right? The problem is that we don't have the perspective that God has. We don't have all the information with our limited and finite understanding, right? And we, we can categorize something, but we don't really see it the way that God sees it. Like a small child who's playing with, who wants to play with fire on the stove and the parents stop him from doing that, all the small child sees is that fire and I want to enjoy that, but the, the parent slaps the child's hand away and says, no, don't touch that, right? Because it could hurt you. And so the parent has a larger perspective right, that the child doesn't have. In the Bible, we read about a king named King Manasseh. He was born, and he ended up being one of the worst kings of Judah in all of history. He did so many wicked and terrible things. His father was Hezekiah. Hezekiah became sick near the end of his life, and he pleaded with God and said, God, can I please have an extension of life? In God's grace and kindness, he gave Hezekiah an extension of life 15 years, do you know what happened in those 15 years? Manasseh was born. He ended up becoming king when he was 12 years old. Again, a wicked king. If God didn't grant that extension, maybe Manasseh wouldn't have been alive, right? And maybe all that evil and wickedness would not be there. For those of you who are Star Trek fans, I, I enjoy watching some Star Trek. And uh, there was an episode in Star Trek Voyager where uh, they, were in, they were in connection with like a time ship. There was a, uh, a time ship that would go and with one of its beams, it would like eliminate parts of history. They could change one event in history and the ripple effect would change tons of other parts of history. And so in one part of, uh, of this episode, the time ship came and they did some calculations and they said, well, if this, co this comet came this way and the starship Voyager had to deviate to another location. So they did some calculations that if we didn't deviate and we stayed on our course, then everything would have been fine and all this other evil wouldn't have happened. So let's eliminate the comet and if we eliminate the comet, then we can stay on our track. So they, they turned back the clock and they did some tests and they eliminated the comet. What happened? Tons of other things were eliminated as well. And they looked at that and they said, wow, just by doing that one little action, see the ripple effect that it had. And that's similar to, to what we're thinking of when we think about the greater good, right? When we think about this philosophically, if one action that God were gonna do to change one event or, or intervene in one event, how does that ripple effect change so many other things, right? So the idea of God uh, and evil existing together is hard to wrap our minds around, but they're not mutually exclusive as atheists believe, but are really unable to prove. Just because we can't think of a good reason for some evil and suffering to exist doesn't mean that there isn't a good reason, right? Because God's scope and God's perspective is much larger than ours. 
Now, I want to take this even a step further to say that it's not just in, in defense of this, but it's actually opposite to atheism. The problem of evil and suffering not only answers the question, but it also points us to a living God. It's not used in order to deny the existence of God, but it's actually used to prove that there is a God, that there is existence uh, of God. Um, the atheist argument of, against evil and suffering is disproving that, the, that God exists. But actually acknowledging that evil and suffering exist is actually an acknowledgement that God exists, right? Because the question is, where do these categories come from? Where do we categorize something as good and bad? Where do we categorize, why do we categorize something as, as good and evil, right? If you uh, remember from last week, we talked about a moral code and a, a moral law that our creator has given, right? And there has to be a moral framework in order to put things into these categories of good and evil, of, of, um, of good and suffering, right? It's a, there's a universal acceptance that rape is wrong, abusing children is wrong, uh, murder is wrong, right? Or even maybe getting cancer or being a victim of, of some natural disaster is, is considered suffering. There's universal acceptance of those things, but where do we get those type of ideas? Where do we get that humans are important, that humans are valuable, that humans have, like us, we have intrinsic worth? Where do we get these categories from? Where do we place these things, right? It goes back to what we posited last week, that there's a moral law and also a moral lawgiver. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says it like this. When I was an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have just given up on my idea of justice by saying that it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not just simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. So see, C.S. Lewis here, he, he's understanding when he, coming from a place of atheism and, and realizing that how do I put into a category something that's unjust? Where do these categories come from, right? It's because God has put into our heart a cry for justice, a cry for equality, a cry for peace, a cry for love, right? Mark Clark says in his book, I love the way that he puts it here, he says, we are designed by our creator to live in a world without sin and death, going back to Genesis 1 and 2. And this is why we long for beauty, justice, love, and peace. This is why we know these categories. We were made for a different world than the one we live in, and the feeling of disorder is one of nostalgia. We would not have these moral categories unless God had given them to us. See, God has given that framework. God has given these categories to us. And so when we understand evil and suffering, it actually points towards the existence of God instead of disproving that God exists. Because as we categorize something as evil, as something that, that is uh, bad, then we realize we need a framework for that. 
Some uh, evolutionists might argue that these categories were produced by millions of years of evolution. But as we saw last week, everything uh, that we learn from evolution is survival of the fittest, is what can I do to survive? I'm not going to care about somebody else. I'm not going to care about justice. I'm not going to care about mercy and love. I need to do what I need to do in order to survive. It's a, it's a dog-eat-dog world that's out there, and it's the total opposite from the moral framework that is within us. Our moral values cry out for justice. It cries out for equality. It cries out for self-sacrifice and love and peace. And completely contrary to what we see in, evolutionary, in a proposed evolutionary model. Clark gives the example uh, of somebody that's known as the prom mom. In 1997, her name is Melissa Drexler. It's a very sad, sad story. Melissa Drexler was pregnant and she didn't tell anybody. She went to her prom, and while the prom was going on, she went to the bathroom and gave birth to her child, killed her child, threw her child in the garbage, and went back out on the prom floor. Sounds terrible, right? The previous year to that, Amy Grosberg and Brian Peterson, 18-year-old college sweethearts, delivered their baby in a motel room, and according to prosecutors, killed him and left his body in a dumpster. Does that cry out something within you that says, hey, that's terrible, that's evil? Well, after that happened, evolutionary theorist and former MIT and current Harvard professor Steven Pinker wrote an article in the New York Times that said, the title was, Why They Kill Their Newborns. And he reasoned that because of evolutionary development, he reasoned that it's not strange to understand why a woman would kill her newborn child. He says that throughout the progress of evolution, women had to make these tough decisions in order to survive, and that if her child was a hindrance to her surviving, then yeah, go ahead and kill your child. And that's what he reasoned in this article. You can look it up and read it for yourself. It, it, it gives a framework for evolutionary thinking and morality that goes against totally what we feel within us, what God has placed within us. He says in the article, quote, it's hard to maintain that neonaticide is an illness when we learn that it has been practiced and accepted in most cultures throughout history. A capacity for neonaticide, again, killing just a newborn baby, is built into the biological design of our parental emotions. If a newborn is sickly or if its survival is not promising, they may cut their losses and favor the healthiest in the litter. That's the, the theology, the framework of evolutionary uh, thinking, which goes completely against what God has put within us. This is the natural conclusion from an evolutionary atheistic perspective that horrifies us, that causes us to cry out and say, how is that even possible? This worldview, world which is enormously troubling, justifies the actions of evil and suffering. And that, friends, is the real problem. That if you have a worldview and a perspective that actually doesn't give an answer or meaning to evil and suffering, but rather justifies it and accepts it and says, hey, that's normal, that's okay, we're just a product of our, uh, uh, of our development, then that's a horrifying conclusion, right? If we're just a product of our evolutionary change. Alvin Plantiga says it like this. Could there really be any such things as horrifying wickedness if there were no God and if we were just evolved? Is there something like horrifying wickedness? Is there a category for that? Right? He says, I don't see how. There can be such a thing only if there is a way that rational creatures are supposed to live, obliged to live, 
A secular way of looking at the world has no place for genuine moral obligation of any sort. And thus, no way to say there is such a thing as genuine and appalling wickedness. There's no category for that. You can't say that. We're just a product of, of our development, right? Accordingly, if you think there really is such a thing as horrifying wickedness, if you do acknowledge that there's horrifying wickedness, if you do acknowledge that, that the story that I told you about this, these child, children being killed is horrifying and wicked and terrible, and not just an illusion of some sort, then you have a powerful argument for the reality of God. And so evil and suffering actually point us to the direction of God, not away from God, right? Eventually, we have to move away from evolutionary frameworks of morality and their explanation for evil as it just doesn't jive with what cries out within us for love, kindness, and peace towards others, okay? The biblical side, right? Throughout the Bible, we see people asking the question about evil and suffering. People asking the question, why am I going through this problem? Why am I going through this difficulty? Where is justice? And we see how this has affected us even from the very fall of Adam and Eve when sin came into the world and evil propagated throughout. And the Bible addresses throughout scriptures the issues of justice and care and love and, and kindness in the midst of deep pain. Timothy Keller, and I'm going to uh, give you a few quotes from Timothy Keller this morning as well. He says this in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. There's a link on our website for the book as well. He says this, Christianity teaches that contra-fatalism suffering is overwhelming. Contra-Buddhism suffering is real. Contra-karma suffering is often unfair. But contra-secularism suffering is meaningful. There is a purpose to it, and if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into, the more, and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. And that's the biblical perspective. That's the biblical framework that there's meaning in the midst of suffering that drives us to the love of God, that drives us to our creator, that drives us into relationship with Christ, Right? We read in Romans chapter 5, verses uh, 3 to 5, it says here, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. Why? For we know that they help us develop endurance. There's a change. Suffering and, and, and evil and pain, it develops something with us, within us. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. See, it drives us back to God's love, right? Keller said, in the secular view, suffering is never seen as meaningful part of life, as a meaningful part of life, but only as an interruption. And, and that's why we ask the question of why evil and suffering? Because we see it as an interruption to our life. We see evil, suffering, pain. We see trials as, as an interruption to our life and not as a meaningful part. And so we ask the question, why suffering? Why problems? Why difficulty? Because we don't see the good actually that it does in our life. When we see characters in the Bible, throughout the story of the Bible, we see people that went through intense suffering and pain, but were made all the more better for it, right? And not as an, as an interruption, but as actually something that was good for them. Job, we read in the book of Job, he lost everything, but at the end, he came out with a deeper, fuller, and satisfying relationship with God than he ever had before. 
Joseph in the Bible, we did a series on Joseph some time ago. He was rejected, misunderstood, put in prison. Uh, but all of those experiences of pain and suffering changed him and changed his character to finally he was able to be over all of Egypt and save Israel. And in Genesis 50 and verse 20, uh, uh, something that Joseph said to his brothers, he said, you intended to harm me because they were trying to kill him they were, and they sold him into slavery. He said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. See, there was meaning in the midst of that pain, in the midst of that suffering. We, we see about Daniel uh, in, in the Bible and how he went through captivity and he went through difficulty and suffering and in the lion's den and his friends went through uh, the, the fiery furnace, not to get into all of those stories, but it was a difficult path for him and his friends, but it produced something in them that they would stay faithful to God in the midst of difficult situations. And so many good characteristics are formed and developed in our life through trials, difficulty, suffering, pain, and evil. Courage, for example, is developed in the time of danger. Perseverance is developed in the midst of obstacles. Compassion is developed as we go through our own trials and difficulties. C.S. Lewis says in, in his book, The Problem of Pain, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. See, he shouts in our pain because we often learn much more when we're going through suffering and pain. We often learn much more when we're going through difficulty than when everything is fine and everything is good in our life. And throughout the Bible, we see instances and stories of people being benefited, growing, becoming stronger through pain and suffering. It forms us and makes us who we are. That's why Keller says, while other worldviews world leads us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, in pain, in suffering, in difficulty, tasting the coming joy. Knowing that this is producing something good in us, not just in this life, but in the life to come. There's a, a movie that was made, it's called I Can Only Imagine, based on the life of, of Bart Millard. You can watch it on Netflix right now, uh, forewarning, watch it with a, a box of Kleenex. But it's a great story based on, based on the story of Bart Millard and the song I Can Only Imagine. And, and in the story, it, it talks about how Bart Millard had a terrible relationship with his dad who was abusive to him. But all of the difficulty and pain that he went through finally led to his dad accepting Jesus, accepting Christ, becoming a follower of Christ, and his life being totally transformed. And finally, when his dad died, he wrote this song in remembrance of his dad and to see all of what had happened to his dad from being a terrible um, uh, man who, who was abusive to somebody who was a follower of Jesus. And he wrote this song, I can only imagine, thinking about what it would be like to go to heaven and see Jesus and to see his dad as well. And the song became the most played song in, in Christian radio history and became the best-selling Christian song of all time. How was that produced? In the furnace of suffering. Many songs that, that we might know, for example, the, the, the famous hymns of It Is Well and Amazing Grace were produced through furnaces of suffering, through difficult times, hard experiences in life that produce these wonderful songs. Some of the greatest accomplishments in human history in scientific discoveries or artistic achievements have an element of suffering and pain in them that causes people to achieve something beyond themselves because of what they've gone through. 
See, God uses our pain, our suffering, and the evil in this world for his good purpose. And in God, we find meaning in suffering and pain and evil as it draws us into a relationship, into a relationship to a loving creator, right? Keller says, suffering can refine us rather than destroy us because God himself walks with us in the fire. And this is the difference. Suffering can, can push us away from God or suffering can draw us into a deeper relationship with him. If we understand and know in this Christian worldview and perspective that God walks with us in the midst of pain and suffering. Timothy Keller um, recently was diagnosed with cancer. His wife had gone through so many sicknesses before she had Crohn's disease, and uh, Keller had um, uh, thyroid cancer before, but just recently, this past May, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and, and as many of you know, that's a very serious type of cancer, and not many people live very long after that. But this is what Timothy Keller said. He said his greatest fear was to go back to how he was before his cancer diagnosis. He said that now he is happier than he's ever been before. He's enjoyed things around him more than he's ever uh, uh, enjoyed before. He's enjoyed prayer more than he has ever before. And this is a man that wrote a book about prayer and wrote a book called uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. But now after experiencing, again, remember as I said, this is a very personal thing. After experiencing this diagnosis in a very personal way, it has brought him to heights of relationship with Jesus that he's not experienced before and he never wants to go back. Some of you know William Aton in our, in our church, and I asked uh, William's permission to share the story, how uh, years ago when he uh, didn't believe in God, he didn't have any faith in God, he was diagnosed with cancer. And the diagnosis of cancer brought him to a critical stage in his life. And in that time, he started to seek and study. He read the book, The Reason for God, and he started to evaluate the arguments of Christianity versus the arguments of atheism. And he saw the Christian worldview and the perspective that it gave, especially to, to meaning and suffering, and he gave his life to the Lord. And some of you might remember when he took baptism here, he said, and, and I asked him this question last night as well, just to, to reconfirm, I said, William, if I gave you the option, cancer and knowing Jesus, or no cancer, a healthy life, and not knowing Christ, he said, I'll take cancer every single time because it, that experience led me to knowing the depths of Jesus. And it's, and it's continued for him as he's continued his walk with the Lord. Finally, the last thing is the Jesus side, right? This really is what makes the Christian perspective and the Christian worldview on suffering and evil the most convincing, the most empathetic, the most comforting, and the most powerful. This is like a grand slam in baseball. Hit out of the park, game over. This is done, the Jesus side, right? That the God of all the universe, the creator of all things, the almighty God, the king of kings, the one who knows all things from the beginning till the end, chose not to stay and sit on his high throne in heaven and observe everything and just say, I have a plan. But he decided to come down to earth in the form of a man and partake in our suffering in the experience of evil, in the harshness of pain, in order to know and empathize with us, to love us, to fellowship with us, and most of all, to redeem us. That, friends, is the power 
of the gospel. Jesus embraced sufferings. If you look in Isaiah chapter 53, we, we see a prophetic uh, chapter about the Messiah and how he would suffer, how he embraced suffering, how he would be the suffering servant. Don't have time to get into it this morning, but our life groups are going to dig into that this week as well, and I encourage you to read that chapter later on. Timothy Keller says it this way, the death of Jesus was quantitatively different from any other death. The physical pain was nothing compared to the spiritual experience of cosmic abandonment. Christianity alone among the world religions claims that, the, that God became uniquely and fully human in Jesus Christ and therefore knows firsthand despair, rejection, loneliness, poverty, bereavement, torture, and imprisonment. See, Timothy Keller in his book uh, argues this. The stronger the bond the greater the abandonment, the greater the pain, the greater the suffering. So if it's parents and children and there's a sense of abandonment, that's pretty great. If it's husband and wife and there's a divorce, if there's an abandonment, that's pretty great. If it's somebody that you just, you know, met on the street or maybe a friend from high school, maybe that bond is not so great, so the abandonment or the loss of that friendship is not that hurtful or that much suffering. But for Jesus, the Son of God to experience the abandonment that he did from God the Father who he, he had known for all eternity past, that fellowship and that relationship is much greater than anything that we have ever experienced and anything that we have ever known because God is beyond our time and experience. For that abandonment to be experienced by Jesus was the greatest suffering. And he did that to identify with us. He did that to experience what we experience. Jesus, the Son of God, didn't stay on his throne, but he entered into our pain. He entered into our suffering. And this is why the Christian worldview and perspective is so powerful, because we have a God and a Savior that comes into pain and suffering and says, I know what you're going through. In the Garden of Gethsemane, on the cross of uh, Calvary, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was we see him as he ministered in this world for three and a half years. He was moved with compassion. He saw the sick and he touched them and he healed them. He saw people that were dead and he raised them them up from there. He had a feeling of compassion and empathy for people. Jesus lost all his glory so that we would be clothed in it. He was shut out so that we could get access. He was bound, nailed so that we could be free. He was cast out so we could approach. And Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that we really, that can really destroy you, that is being cast away from God. He took that so that now all suffering that comes into your life will only make you great. A lump of coal under pressure becomes a diamond, and the suffering of a person in Christ only turns you into somebody gorgeous. Timothy Keller, walking with God through pain and suffering. See, our God, Jesus, came to this world and embraced suffering. There's no other worldview that talks about that. There's no other worldview that comes even close to giving an answer for suffering and giving meaning to pain. In Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16, it says, This high priest, Jesus Christ, of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly. He invites us now. Come boldly to the throne of, of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. 
Are you in need today? Are you going through pain and suffering today? Jesus invites us because he knows our pain. He has suffered even much more than we can imagine. He cares, and he did something about it by coming to this world. That's the difference. So even if we don't have a complete answer to be able to say, I know why this evil is there, I know why this suffering is there, and we don't know because we don't have the perspective of God. But what we do know is that he's not indifferent. What we do know is that he does care, and he did something about it by coming down to us, to know us, to love us, to redeem us. And, and now he calls us to know him. And in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of evil, that's how we know him more. We would never know God as our healer if we were never sick. We would never know him as our deliverer if we were never in bondage. We would never know him as provider if we were never in need. We would never know him as refuge if we were never discouraged. We would never know him as light if we were never in darkness. We would never know him as a fortress if we were never in need of protection. We would never know him as comforter if we never mourned. We would never know him as guide if we were never lost. We would not know him as shepherd if we never needed any direction. We would not know him as a sanctifier if we never sinned. We would not know him as strength if we were never weak. He, we could not know God as our sustainer if we never failed, or as father if we were never abandoned, or as friend if we were never alone. We would not know him as our hope if we were never cast down. We would not know him as our victory if we were never lost. We would not know him as redeemer if we were never in captivity. And friends, we would never know him as savior if we were never desperately lost. And that's how we experience meaning in the midst of pain and suffering and evil because it drives us into the arms of a loving, faithful, kind, and gracious God who cares for us. We might not have all the answers now, but one thing we know is that God who sees something greater and has a greater scope cares for us. Do you know that, Jesus? I want to invite you today to know him, to follow him, to ask him, be my savior. He invites you to know him in all of his fullness. Let's sing to the Lord.